Hello, and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I am joined by Professor Khaled Beydoun, an Associate Professor of Law and the Associate Director of Civil Rights and Social Justice, Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights at Wayne State University Law School. Professor Beydoun's scholarship focuses on national security, Islamophobia, modern policing, and critical race theory. We discuss Professor Beydoun's article titled On Sacred Land, which analyzes how the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act counters land use discrimination against Muslims. The article was published in the Minnesota Law Review in the spring of 2021. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Professor Baden, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we are wont to do on this podcast, I thought I would start with some high-level kind of definitions of some key terms that come up a lot in your piece and will come up in our conversation. Um, so the the first one of those terms that I was hoping you could kind of define and talk about briefly is land use discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, land use discrimination is when a um, some some body of city government engages in whether it be racial, religious, identity based discrimination in extending access to uh, whether it be the whether, whether it be real property or the construction of um, you know, a building, um, on, on a parcel of land. Perfect. So now I've got two acronyms for you. The first one is ASM. ASM, the anti-Sharia movement, um, was a sort of political movement that emerged, I would say in 2010, um, on the heels of the emergence of the, uh, the, the Tea Party movement whereby uh, you know, various political actors, uh, one individual specifically that I identify in the piece, David Yuroshami, um, looked to pass, uh, leg- looked, I'm sorry, looked to push legislation uh, that essentially demonizes Islam under the banner of this, these anti-Sharia bills um, that were percolating through, throughout much of the country. Okay, and this this last acronym, there might be a fun shorthand way to say it, but I'll, I'm not familiar, so I'll have to spell it. R L U I P A. Yeah, RELUPA, Religious Land Use, um, an Incarcerated Persons Act, Institutionalized Persons Act, um, is legislation that was enacted in 2000 uh, that looks to address land use discrimination and federalizes complaints against land use discrimination. Um, you know, extending relief or possible relief to parties, including the subjects um, of this piece on sacred land Muslims um, to curb the prospect of discrimination and have access to uh, to land. Gotcha. So it kind of sounds like it's it's functioning maybe at the crux of land use discrimination ASM. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. So RELUPA, uh, the, the legislation effectively is, a, is an instrument that um, aggrieved parties use to cut against land use discrimination. And the land use discrimination that is focal to this piece is the uh, the anti-Sharia movement, the ASM, which is, you know, a form of, you know, Islamophobia. And maybe we can define that term if you'd like. <laughs> I'd go for it. Yeah, I think it'd be helpful. <laughs> Yeah, Islamophobia is, uh, you know, essentially bigotry towards Muslims. And 
you know, ASM, the anti-Sharia movement, is a form of state-sponsored Islamophobia um, that is extended or enforced by way of legislation looking to demonize Muslims and then impair their access to land. Gotcha. Okay, so, sorry, go on. Yeah, so these four different definitions or pieces kind of come together almost in network form to describe um, what this piece focuses in on. Mm -hmm. And real quick before we we dive into what the focus of your piece is, I also think it'd be helpful to explore a little bit of the background that kind of led to the development of these, these four things in this moment that your, your piece focuses on. So, um, you know, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about a, a case called employment division V Smith. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the significance of that case? Yeah. Employment division versus Smith was a, was a landmark decision um, in 1990, which, uh, essentially reshapes free exercise of religion jurisprudence. It says that um, discrimination that is not intentional is not enough uh, to bring forward a claim against uh, a government. So basically, as a, as, a, as a consequence of Smith, you need full-fledged intentional discrimination um, to bring forward the higher burden of proof that is enacted by courts to assess free exercise of religion discrimination. Mm. And I suppose that probably wasn't happening too often after that court case came down. Yeah, the before Smith uh, proving uh, proving activity or state or state action that substantially burdens religion uh, was enough to trigger heightened scrutiny within the courts with regard to free exercise of religion. Smith does away with that. Um, it's in, in some ways it's analogous to the Washington versus Davis case, which you know puts forward this really difficult standard where. Um, Plaintiffs or aggrieved parties have to prove intentional discrimination, which, uh, you know, in in today's times is really difficult to prove because governments, state actors, individuals, oftentimes guys, they're animists, they guise their discrimination, um, which makes it really tough to prove intent. Mm -hmm. And so jumping from a point of vision v. Smith, um, one other, I think, key piece of background here is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Where does that fit into this kind of background puzzle? Yeah, so RIFRA, um, you know, ascends to sort you know, attempts at first to broadly uh, cut against uh, the, the negative effect that Smith had on aggrieved parties um, to fight against religious discrimination on the part of state actors and their proxies. Um, RIFRA, uh, introduces the substantial burden test in, in a broad array, uh, you know, of different realms, um, and it sort of, sort of, you know, it sort of, uh, you know, blazes the trail for RLUPA, which is more focused in nature. RLUPA focuses specifically on land use and also uh, discrimination against incarcerated individuals. It's far more narrow than RIFRA, um, but RIFRA becomes uh, sort of the the, uh, the the legislative boon that enables the spawn of RLUIPA in 2000. And there's been a lot of controversy around RIFRA and specifically these mini RIFRA bills that are popping up um, on, this, on, on the state level. It's, it's important to know that, you know, my, this piece on sacred land is really interesting because it focuses specifically on um, land use and land use discrimination. But the bodies of legislation that it hones in on are really timely because it's critical to, to identify that RIFRA and specifically these mini, mini RIFRA bills have been used as weapons to legitimize discrimination against um, sexual minorities. Mm-hmm. And that there's, so there's a lot of opposition against RIFRA on grounds of um, it being a bill that facilitated 
discrimination against the LGBTQ community. I actually think that's a fantastic transition into looking at Relupa a little bit more closely. So um, as I, as I understand it, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, there, there's sort of protections and then there's some causes of actions in Relupa. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So it has a deterrent effect. Um, so Relupa exists. So it effectively functions as, you know, a, you know, a signal or a mechanism to state agencies, uh, board commissions, planning commissions, uh, you know, these bodies that assess um, and green light or restrict um, building on properties that if you discriminate and we identify that you discriminate, then there might be punitive action taken on, um, you know, on the part of the DOJ. But it has a proactive um, sort of arm as well, enabling the DOJ to investigate um, religious discrimination on the part of those state agencies. And then second, it enables unilateral action on the part of the, on the, on the, part of the DOJ to bring suit on behalf of a grieved party. So it has a, um, you know, multidimensional effect, deterrent, uh, but also proactive and, you know, and stifling on one end, but then fighting against discrimination as well. That seems like a, to me, it seems like a very powerful sort of mechanism too. being able to the DOJ being able to, to bring suit on behalf of these aggrieved parties, especially considering the background of employment division v. Smith. Yeah, definitely. So I, you know, and again, I think um, what is sort of transformative about Relupa um, is that um, you know you don't have to prove intent. Substantial burden is enough. So substantial burden is, you know, in some respects analogous to you know disparate impact in the Fourteenth Amendment context or in the Title Seven context. So it's a, it's a lower threshold uh, where if the evidence is um, persuasive enough that we do have substantial burdening of religious exercise, then the DOJ can act. Gotcha. And the the last little piece of background I wanted to cover here was um, your piece kind of breaks down land use discrimination experienced by Muslims during the time of Relupa and it, it it into two different pieces. It's like the the birth of Relupa in 2000, 2010, and then 2010 to present. Could you talk about those two different pieces? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, this is one, this is one of the few pieces that I've written. And if you're familiar with my, I guess, broader corpus of work, I write on national security and the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm critical of state policy <laughs> because it has an injurious effect on um, Muslim and marginalized communities in the United States. This, this piece was aberrational in the sense that I was sort of lauding uh, a, a piece of um, state law having a positive effect uh, but that wasn't the intent of Relupa, right? Relupa, you know, legislators were championing Relupa in 2000. And recall, right, uh, 2000 was a year before the 9-11 terror attacks and the emergence and expansion of the war on terror um, in the days after. The, the objective of Relupa wasn't necessarily to sort of vindicate the religious rights of Muslim communities, right? I think it's important to sort of identify that it, it didn't have that sort of altruistic um, aim when it was being... Um, spearheaded and then, um, um, you know, uh, supported by legislators in 2000. Um, it was supported, ironically enough, by a lot of evangelical, Southern, conservative uh, legislators who were more interested in protecting the religious rights of um, churches, right? Christian groups, specifically in states where, um, you know, secularism and um, non-religiosity were becoming really popular. So Relupa, politically speaking, was was pushed forward to, to protect uh, Christian rights. Hmm. Um, but uh, coincidentally enough, it becomes a piece of law 
that after 9-11 becomes very potent, becomes very productive in the protection of Muslim rights during an era of unprecedented Islamophobia and anti-Muslim animus, um, first in you know, what, what scholars call the war on terror decade, uh, 2001 to 2010, where you see an unprecedented uptick in hate crimes, hate incidents against uh, Muslim individuals and Muslim communities. Uh, but in that same vein, you also see an, an uptick in land use discrimination against Muslims seeking to build mosques, seeking to build cemeteries, seeking to build religious schools. Um, and that's that's logical, right? Because you would think that land use discrimination would increase at the same rate or at a similar rate of hate crimes and hate incidents. So RELUPA, although not intended uh, to be an instrument of um, religious vindication for Muslims, becomes that in the war on terror decade, and then becomes even more useful in the following decade where we witness an even even, um, um, a higher uptick in land use discrimination against Muslims from 2010 um, to 2020, the second decade that you identify. Mm. And I think it's actually really interesting. Something else you identify in your piece is, you know, ASM has had differing impacts at maybe the state legislative and local government level versus its discursive impact. Could you could you talk about that? Because I think that ties in really nicely what you were just talking about. Yes. Yeah, so you know, ironically enough, it's kind of it, it's kind of counterintuitive. You 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 people in when I present this piece at um, to law faculties, but also when I present it to, to to lay audiences, they're really surprised by the fact that land use discrimination against Muslims actually escalated after 2010. You would think that in the immediate wake of the 9-11 terror attacks, when things were, uh, you know, very, you know, when, when racism and Islamophobia is quite intense, that it would be higher then. Um, and that's why I decided to write to write this piece. I read a, read a DOJ study that showed that uh, discrimination, not only discrimination, but the inability to settle cases when uh, involving a, an aggrieved Muslim party was far higher after 2010. Um, led me to sort of identify what the catalyst of that was. And it was very much this ASM, uh, this anti-Sharia movement that was picking uh, up steam in 2010 and really capitalizing on the anti-Muslim hysteria and Islamophobia um, that emerged in the war on terror decade um, and sort of mutated into a full-fledged political movement and then a legislative sort of um, movement to push forward bills that essentially cast Islam, the entire religion, and it's critical to identify that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the United States. It's um, in terms of um, racial and ethnic demographics, the most diverse faith group in the United States. Um, So this movement, ASM, was looking to brand Islam not only as a um, religion, but as a political and civilizational movement that was, um, you know, sort of conspiring to erode American values, um, you know, threaten American security, mm-hmm. um, becoming not only pervasive in the South, but across the United States. And so the ASM as a movement becomes uh, the spur, the catalyst that leads to an even greater uptick in land use discrimination after 2010. Did did it have any success in in passing any sort of state legislation? Yeah, so it's it's success. I think I think um, and in the piece I measure how it's 
it's important to sort of identify or qualify what success means with mm-hmm. regard to this movement, right? So you can't measure success. And I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the spearhead of the movement, this individual, David Yerushami, who wrote the model bill and who became sort of the political engine behind the movement, he even says himself that uh, the real objective here isn't to pass standing legislation. Many states did pass standing legislation. I think the number now might stand at 15. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's only one sort of metric of success. I think the, the bigger metric of success um, is in echoing um, what he said is he wanted to sort of stage and mainstream a heuristic movement, right? Sort of a, uh, you know, a broader sort of popular narrative and discourse um, that was not only echoed in, um, you know, Congresses within the states, uh, but more importantly in media, social media, um, in in communities, um, within households, uh, that anti-Sharia was a threat to, to the American way of life. So this heuristic objective, I think, uh, was the principal sort of metric of success um, that Yerushami was aiming for. And I think that um, that me as a scholar, when writing this piece, was honing in on versus how many pieces of um, legislation were actually enacted at the state level. And to that measure, um, it was very successful, I think, because anti-Sharia, especially, um, you know, with early on um, the kind of unexpected uh, success of the Tea Party, um, you know, functions as a boon that pushes the ASM forward. And then obviously in 2015, with the emergence of Donald Trump, who made Islamophobia a full-fledged campaign issue, you had an even greater boon that pushes the ASM um, further, um, more expansively across the United States. So it was, it was very, it was a very successful movement. And I think a very uh, well strategized movement in that it anchored itself to very powerful, uh, powerful political currents, specifically um, the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's, it's, you've just spoken about how broadly influential the ASM movement has been. And I think that um, something your piece does so well is kind of focus in on how it's impacted uh, land use and has resulted in land use discrimination. And you've included a couple different uh, examples, but one I wanted to talk with you more about today is actually another court case um, called the United States v. Culpeper County. Um, this is I realize it's not the first time I've asked you about a court case, but it is one of the few times myself as a law student can cold call a law professor. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit and then we can dive deeper into about the the case United States v. Culpeper County. Yeah, so Culpeper is a small town in Virginia. Um, It's close to Charlottesville where the University of Virginia is seated, not too far from Washington, D.C., where you had a small um, but kind of burgeoning Muslim community um, that was essentially using a used uh, car lot um, um, as a makeshift mosque for a long time. But like many, not only Muslim communities, but faith groups across the country um, that are, you know, sort of emerging and uh, galvanizing, what those communities do is tend to, they, they pool their money um, and they pull their money to build a religious institution that uh, the entire community can benefit from. And that's exactly what happened in Culpeper. Um, so they pulled their money, had an, uh, raised enough money where they can build an actual formal standalone mosque. Uh, they applied for a license to build a mosque um, and specifically needed a, they, they needed a septic tank, uh, you know, various 
city codes require that you meet specific uh, structural benchmarks before you receive a license. And that was sort of, uh, you know, one of the licenses they needed to procure before building. So they followed all the steps, um, you know, followed protocol, um, applied for a license for a septic tank, and they were denied by a three to two board vote. Um, and um, the the organizers of the mosque, you know, community leaders, um, you know, were thinking, hey, there's something going on. We followed all the steps. Um, the history shows that within Culpeper um, County that there hadn't been many denials, if any denials, of these septic tanks. Why are we being denied? Um, what's unique about our claim and our license that le- that leads you to this, you know, sort of unprecedented board vote? Uh, come to find out that, uh, you know, Virginia, um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? We're kind of living at a time in this country where states are shifting in terms of their politics. But it's also critical to know that, you know, states aren't politically monolithic. I think you know that in Minnesota, the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. very liberal. And, um, you know, outside of the Twin Cities, things can get quite conservative. Um, that, in some respects, is true for Virginia, where uh, the southern part of the state, kind of beyond the the, uh, the metro DMV area, um, can kind of turn red. And Culpeper is one of these places that not only turns red, but where the anti-Sharia bills that were introduced uh, were quite resonant. And um, uh, uh, Virginia was a place where you had four of these anti-Sharia bills uh, being introduced um, over the uh, d- during the last couple of years, sort of the the broader temporal context in which. Uh, this Muslim community applied for a septic tank uh, license. So um, when the community learned about these Muslims' objective to build a mosque, the residents sort of organized, right? The the residents, the non-Muslim residents in the community, there there was a barrage of phone calls, emails from residents, complaints from individuals in the community um, to effectively lobby the board to deny their license. Um, and the board capitulated to that public pressure. Um, and it kind of functions almost kind of, as a, you know, what I call it in the pieces of popular covenant, mm-hmm. right? This is the community, the sort of uh, broader populace in the area, um, mobilizing and then galvanizing to fight against the construction of an institution that is conflated with terror, with suspicion, with inassimilability. And the board effectively capitulated and gave in to the discriminatory tide coming from the city. As a consequence um, of what was pretty patent um, in terms of this qualifying religious discrimination, the DOJ, through RELUPA, filed suit, right, through a federal court order, um, and then relief, and then um, delivers relief, right? there's, There's a positive conclusion to the DOJ suit. Uh, the conclusion was delivery of the permit to build the mosque, uh, in addition to delivery of the permit. Um, what's really sort of impactful beyond just sort of prescription with RELUPA is that um, RELUPA also mandates religious sensitivity, sensitivity trainings, RELUPA trainings that the board has to go through, and then a monitoring of city records moving ahead. So it has a the Culpepper case, just to kind of put a cap on it, Sorry if I'm speaking too much. Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, to put a cap on it, um, the solution is twofold, right? It, it kind of has like a direct uh, solution prescription because delivery of the permit enables the Muslim community to build their mosque. And that mosque is currently standing today in the city of Culpeper. 
but it also kind of has a perspective um, uh, prescription also um, in that it looks to prevent future religious discrimination by mandating these trainings and monitoring of city records uh, to stifle or, uh, you know, again, prevent the, uh, prevent the prospect of this kind of thing happening again, not only to Muslim groups, right? So let's say if a Jewish community wanted to build a synagogue in Culpeper, a Hindu group wanted to build a temple. Um, these Rulupa trainings in DOJ monitoring essentially put uh, the, the city on notice that we know what's going on. Um, you have this stigma, you know, branded, branded uh, against you that if you engage in like discrimination moving ahead, um, RELUPA will be enforced um, to protect these communities. Has there been any sort of ASM backlash to RELUPAs, given that, you know, you spoke at the beginning of our conversation, maybe the proponents of um, RELUPA maybe weren't Muslim people, or RELUPA wasn't intended to benefit Muslims yeah. exclusively by any means. Is, has there been sort of a backlash to RELUPA being so effective? No, because I think the best way to sort of think about it is <laughs> the Muslim beneficiaries were not intended, but it's a windfall. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there's broad sort of, you know, especially popular and lay consciousness conceives of and frames Rulupa as a uh, sort of a, a Christian centric piece of legislation. Right. Um, very few people know within, you know, the I think the popular or even I think the the broader political sphere that RELUPA has been an instrument that has benefited Muslims. That's been, you know, sort of marginalized within the broader consciousness, um, which is why I wrote this piece, right? I wanted to tell mm-hmm. sort of a subaltern and, you know, fringe story about a piece of legislation that was benefiting Muslims that nobody really knew about, um, aside from aggrieved parties and aside from a handful of DOJ lawyers who were bringing uh, forward these suits. Um, but ironically enough, much of the opposition to, to RELUPA um, has been, um, you know, advocates of, um, I think because I mean, much of this is also because Rulupa has been, con- you know, in some respects unfairly conflated with RIFRA, mm. um, you know, them being both branded um, sort of religious protection statutes. Much of the opposition has been from the left, ironically enough, and specifically advocates of uh, sexual minority rights. I, that's actually, again, a fantastic transition because I know you you mentioned that kind of the scope of victims to the religious animus that drives discrimination isn't limited to minority faith groups, but also kind of racial, sexual minority groups. Could you talk a little bit more about how Muslims and other victimized groups could coordinate or have coordinated or don't coordinate to kind of move forward or benefit from RELUPA? Yeah, that's and that's been the trickiest part of this. <laughs> honest with you because you know it's kind of being supportive of a piece of legislation and as a consequence of that support having um really awkward bedfellows right so mm-hmm. uh, you know you know again i'm somebody who tends to be more progressive and um, i'm supporting a piece of legislation that has been championed by conservative if not far right um you know elements um, and I've been on panels when presenting this piece where, um, you know, there have been scholars who are concerned with sexual minorities, LGBTQ rights, who are, um, you know, critical and justifiably critical against uh, RIFRA and religious freedom statutes like um, RELUPA, right? So I, I definitely, um, you know, echo their criticism, but also, you know, kind of the broader political context tied to these bills um, that sort of inspires your criticism. Um 
But yeah, you know, when writing this piece and thinking about, you know, where this piece is situated within the broader religious freedom um, debate scholarship, I, I was really mindful to, um, you know, be sensitive to uh, the claims uh, of sexual minorities with regard to, um, you know, countering the negative effect of these religious freedom uh, statutes, specifically the mini referis popping across uh, the states. Um, and I was also mindful of at least initiating a discussion, which is why the last section in the piece, in, in this piece on sacred land, which looks to, you know, at least initiate, um, you know, a conversation as to how Muslim communities can align themselves strategically with sexual minority communities um, to fight against, uh, you know, kind of the same, the, the same political elements that are Islamophobic, but also homophobic, mm. right? because these are same actors who espouse those views. And oftentimes um, religious minorities and sexual minorities are victim to far right movements. Um, I don't have the answers with this piece, right? And I'm still thinking about what those answers might be. And I'm looking forward to engage more fully with scholars who write about those issues. But I at least wanted to situate this piece to say that although Muslims are benefiting from Rulupa, I'm also conscious of the fact that religious freedom uh, statutes have been used as weapons, um, you know, against uh, vulnerable groups, including sexual minorities. Um, but, you know, again, I don't have the answers as of yet, um, but I'm, I'm hoping to sort of be part of collectives and collaboratives to identify what those answers might be. I think that's excellent. Do you, so I guess you you spoke again at the beginning about how Relupa is, is pretty narrowed. Is it fair to say that Relupa excels at what it was maybe intended to do, which was to address land use discrimination? I think so. I think I think one of its greatest attributes is that it's narrow, right? And the, the, by virtue of it being narrow, it, it can be weaponized and it can be distorted uh, by elements that look to use religious or protections against religious discrimination to engage in proactive, let's say, homophobic discrimination in the way that RIFRA can, right? I think I think RIFRA's breadth and that it applies to so much. Um, you know, makes it a more sort of dangerous bludgeon for nefarious elements to use it as a legal and a political tool to sort of um, mutate what might look like religious protection to actually be um, uh, same-sex discrimination. It's tough to do that with Relupa, right? Because it's it's narrowed to two specific realms, land use, um, and then protection of incarcerated individuals, free exercise rights. So I, I think I think that's I think what you said is exactly true. The fact that it's so uh, narrowly tailored um, makes it makes it more effective with its uh, you know principal objectives on one hand, but it also I think makes it less co-optable um, than RIFRA and the mini RIFRAs. That's kind of keeping keeping your eyes looking forward here. My my final question for you is pretty open ended, but you know, wh- where do you see Relupa going from here? Do you, do you see it moving? Do you see it staying the same? Um, just any thoughts on that? It's tough to gauge. You know, I think, I think it's tough to gauge, um, you know, and, and much of it is contingent with uh, the political elements in power. I think in some respects, one of the, one of the greatest sort of um, positives associated with Relupa is that it's kind of flown under the radar, right? It's not a, a piece of legislation that has garnered uh, a lot of popular, uh, you know, attention. It hasn't caused the same kind of debate um, and opposition as RIFRA. And by virtue of it sort of being less cognizable, politically speaking, I kind of see it 
being um, steadfast and in place in the near future. Now, one possible risk is, and I think one thing that um, that I've identified, especially when discussing Rulupa um, with, with journalists or various media outlets or with lay audiences, is there is this tendency and perhaps a political sort of movement to conflate it with RIFRA. Um, and one possible fear is that if opposition to RIFRA and these mini RIFRAs uh, leads to conflating it with Rulupa, then it possibly can be threatened. Um, I don't see that being the case, but that's something I'm sort of um, paying attention to. Professor Baydoun, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks so much for having me. And I'm really excited to, uh, to see this piece published by the Minnesota Law Review. And I've really enjoyed uh, working with you and your colleagues during the life of the editing process. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. For current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.